If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 6. If you've been with us throughout the summer, as we've had opportunity, we've been looking at uh, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It is the the model, it is the template uh, that structures the prayer of the followers of Jesus Christ. It's commonly called the the Lord's Prayer, although as I mentioned several weeks ago, it would probably be better called uh, the Disciples' Prayer, because this is the template that the Lord had given for the disciples of Jesus to follow. Throughout the summer, we've looked at it not as a whole, because it is a a prayer and it is a a structure of a prayer, uh, but we've been looking at it from petition to petition. Just as a reminder and an introduction for some who have uh, uh, perhaps have not been here, uh, we noted that and have been noting throughout how the Lord's Prayer itself follows the pattern of the Ten Commandments. Just as the Ten Commandments is said to have two tables, uh, two tablets, the first uh, of the commandments, first four commandments being uh, the way that, regulating the way that we are to relate to God, and uh, the last six, the second table of the way that we are to live our lives in this world. So the Lord's Prayer is structured with two tables. After the, after the beginning, the preface, our, our Father who is in heaven, uh, we have six specific petitions that, that follow, uh, the first three of which, the first table of those petitions, deal with uh, our relationship. They're prayers for our intimacy with God. And then the second set of petitions, the third, uh, the third, uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth petition, uh, they are prayers to God to provide so that we are able to live in this world together with one another, uh, to enjoy God and to honor Him and to experience the flourishing that He has designed us originally to have and that He is in the process of restoring. Uh, we come this morning, our focus will be on verse 12 in the fifth of the petitions. But for the sake of continuity, uh, we will begin our reading in Matthew 6, verse 5, and I'll be reading this week uh, through verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who is who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, uh, forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come, uh, we come with great thanksgiving, not only of the promise of your presence, uh, but the experience of redemption and the process of renewal that you are at work within all whom you have called, you have redeemed, you have made alive in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness we've experienced and pray that you would continue to be at work within us as the Holy Spirit applies your word to our hearts. Speak to our minds that we may know and understand Speak to our hearts that we may receive and be changed. Lord, shape us that we all may reach the full maturity of Christ and be knit together as one body, not only here in this church, but united with your believers throughout the world. 
To you be all praise and glory and thanksgiving in your church. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. As someone who has been forgiven much, including by many of you, I am greatly and deeply appreciative of what Jesus says in this petition, the necessity of forgiveness. But as somebody who has walked for many days in this world, seeing the brokenness, having scars uh, as a result of brokenness in the world, I have to admit a, a deep discomfort by what Jesus says we are to do as we are followers, particularly as I consider not just the prayer that we have in verse 12, but the elaboration, the commentary that Jesus adds following it in verses 14 and 15, when he says, if you forgive, then you're forgiven. If you, but if you're not willing to forgive, if you're an unwilling, uh, someone who's unwilling to be forgiven, uh, then there's no reason for God to forgive you. Like many people, I, I stand in awe and when I see what seemed to me uh, some incredible demonstrations of forgiveness. This week, I'm thinking back in terms of some things that everyone may be familiar with. And coming to mind was the, uh, the church shooting in Charleston several years ago in 2015. You may remember the midweek Bible study. An awkward young white man walks into the historically... Uh, historic African-American Episcopal Church in Charleston, Emmanuel AME Church. And he sat there for a while and participated in a Bible study. People welcomed him in, had never seen him before, noticed that he seemed a little bit high-strung in, in his awkwardness, but then in the middle of it, with no warning whatsoever, he pulls out a gun, stands up, and he shoots his fellow Bible study participants and killed nine of them. It shook the nation. A number of months later, when the trial of this young man was taking place, and it was obvious what he had done, and when the sentence was about to be pronounced, the family members who were there in, in, in great number, one by one, were given an opportunity to address the man before his sentencing, and each one of them stood up and said to the effect, I will never see my mother again. I will never be able to hold my husband again but I forgive you, and I pray the Lord will have mercy on your soul. Nearly a decade before, also rocking the nation, news blasted uh, a shooting that took place in an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. A, a man who was disturbed emotionally, but functional, it seemed by all accounts, one morning left home, and then left a message for his wife, which disturbed her, which said, I won't see you again. She calls 911 and said, I think my husband is going to be committing suicide. But what she didn't know what was going to happen and didn't know until the police came to her door was he went over to a, a schoolhouse that was filled with Amish family, Amish students. He directed all of the, the boys and all of the adults to leave the room and at gunpoint force them out and then shot several of the students who were still there, killing five of them. 
the widow, uh, the, the man committed suicide, and uh, the widow was shook when the police had told her about what had happened. And uh, as she was still trying to process it that day, her father came over, her parents came over, and, and then in an article, uh, an interview with her later on, here's what she reports. Hours after learning what her husband had done, a contingent of grieving Amish came to visit her. She recalled that she was standing in her parents' kitchen, so she had gone to her parents' house, and she could see a group of Amish walking toward her parents' home. Her father offered to go outside to talk to them. And she says, I, I couldn't hear the words they were saying, but I could see the exchange that was happening. I could see their arms extending and the way they laid their hands on my dad's shoulders. I could feel it. I could feel the emotion of the moment. You know, it said everything, she said, adding that her father said that they had forgiven her husband. They were concerned about me and concerned about my kids, and they wanted us to know that they, had, they, they supported our family. I didn't, it didn't end there. When the family was besieged by media en route to bury the now dead um, murderer, the Amish stepped in again. Even though they don't like to have their pictures taken, members of the community placed themselves directly in front of the news cameras to shield the family. They turned their backs to the cameras so only pictures could, that could be taken were of them and not of the family. And it was amazing to me that they would choose to do that for us, she said. It was amazing. It was one of the, those, it was one of those moments during the week where my breath was taken away, not because of the evil, but because of the love. And even going back much further, uh, recorded in the 1972 edition, November 1972 edition of Guidepost magazine, uh, Corey Ten Boom uh, recounts a significant event in her own life. Corey Ten Boom had been uh, part of a, a Dutch family that was harboring uh, Jewish fugitives from the Nazis. And as a result of that, they had been uh, arrested and sentenced to the Nazi concentration camps. And in that Nazi concentration camp, her sister had died. She was speaking after the war in Germany, and she was speaking of the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And I can't do justice, so I'm just going to read what, uh, what Corrie ten Boom uh, writes in, in this Guidepost uh, article. She said, it was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany in the, with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear uh, in a bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the, the sea is never far from Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There was never a question after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room, and that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones, she's meaning in her mind. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, the ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. 
Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Corrigan Boom says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. Parenthetically, she said, no, he clearly doesn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, he stuck out his hand. Will you forgive me? And Corrington Boom says, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day been forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase the slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it was not only, a, as, a, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what had been the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there uh, with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperament of the heart, temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into the joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried. With all my heart, for, I forgive you. For, as, for, for a long moment, uh, we grasped each other's hands, uh, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Amazing. And I stand in awe when I think of these, and there are many, many other instances. And then as I'm preparing yesterday, I'm still kind of harboring a grudge against the computer of the Cox company because my internet wasn't working yesterday. <laughs> I had to call them several times. Now, to be legalistic, I don't know that I have to forgive a computer, but that's a whole other issue. But I am reminded of what C.S. Lewis said. He says, everyone, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. But Jesus doesn't allow us 
to figure out whether we want to or, or not. He says, basically, here's, here's how this works. We, we are forgiven and we are to forgive. We forgive and we are forgiven. Now, it's important that we understand that, as uh, Puritan Thomas Watson points out, that it is not our forgiveness that is the basis of being forgiven, but it is the ground by which we receive the forgiveness of God. In other words, God forgives and his forgiveness is greater uh, than our sin, which includes our inability or unwillingness to forgive at times. But when we are unwilling to forgive others, then we, we don't really experience the fullness of, of God's forgiveness. And we see that not so much in, in the passages before us, but the overarching teaching of Jesus. But what is clear here, especially when we consider this whole idea of forgiveness in light of all the teachings of Scripture, is that being forgiven and forgiving are inseparably linked. What Jesus is saying here and throughout all of the Scripture is this, that God's design is for the church to be the display case where he wants to show the trophies of what true forgiveness of sin is all about. And that means when we gather together, we are the trophies of God's grace of those who are forgiven and are aware of that, which is why we do a confession in our service each time. And at the same time, we are those who are being transformed, who are being reminded of the forgiveness that we have so that we might ourselves be those who are God's agents of forgiveness in this world. And as Jesus is speaking, there are really just two simple points that we need to look at this. Jesus tells us this, is that those who are in Christ, we are the forgiven, we are forgiven of our sin. We are God's forgiven people. And as God's second, as, God, as we are God's forgiven people, God, Jesus is commissioning us. He is expecting us to be God's forgiving people as we serve as a priesthood to this world, standing between God and a broken world. We intercede to God on their behalf and we proclaim the forgiveness that can be theirs in Christ, just as it is for those of us who believe. But we need to be rooted in this reality. We need to understand first and foremost, we, if we are a part of Christ's church, if we are if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are God's forgiven people. It's said that the church is the only organization or institution in the world that requires admission that we should not be allowed to join is a prerequisite for becoming a member. In other words, as you've joined this church or any churches like it, and you think about the first question that we ask before you join is this, do you acknowledge that you are a sinner and deserving of God's judgment? We're admitting, the first thing we ask of everybody who joins the church is, do you admit we shouldn't let you in? That is the condition that is also immediately followed up. Are you receiving the grace that God gives that is yours in the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus himself says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we need to always remember that the church is a home for forgiven sinners. It is a place for spiritual failures. It is not a museum for the spiritually and the morally successful. It is not a museum for those who consider themselves pure. Because Jesus says, I didn't come for those who consider themselves just fine. I came for those who know that they have need. I came for those who know uh, that they are messed up. And so if he didn't come for those who think they're just fine, there's no way that those who think they're just fine can be part of the body that he says is his. He didn't come for anyone who thinks they're just fine. Admission, recognition, acknowledgement of our need, of our being broken, and therefore in need of forgiveness is a prerequisite to becoming part of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we must always remember, even though that is our condition, 
As the Apostle Paul elaborates in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, here's the promise of the gospel for those who recognize we have this great need that we can't resolve ourselves. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, the church, the followers of Christ, the church is the followers of Christ who are God's forgiven people. And I love the way that author Jerry Bridges puts it in his book, The Gospel for Real Life. Our sins have been put away. To use the language of Scripture, they are completely removed, put behind God's back, blotted out, remembered no more, and hurled into the depths of the sea. And when we believe this, when we really believe this, when we embrace the identity of being forgiven sinners, it changes everything about us as individuals, and it changes the whole community of the church when the church is a collection, a community of people who understand that we are not the superior people in our community or on this earth. We are the forgiven people because we are not any better than anybody else who is around us. Jack Miller said in one of his lectures, and I couldn't find it, so I can't quote him directly on this. Jack Miller, for those who are not familiar with him, was a a professor at Westminster Seminary, a a pastor. He began uh, the uh, World Harvest Mission, which is now called Surge Mission. Um, Just a a tremendous church statesman uh, a generation ago. And and many in our church have uh, a fondness for him because uh, his son Paul is a a friend to a a number of people in this church. But what Jack Miller said was this uh, essentially is that it is only the, the child that is afraid of his or her parents will never admit wrong. But when a child is completely assured that he or she is loved and accepted, that child is free to admit the truth and therefore change. And what he's getting at is, is, is we are people who understand that our identity is as forgiven people, that we have been forgiven of our failures, our shortcomings, and our sins. And we have been accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done to redeem us, to pay the penalty that our sins had deserved. And and therefore, we have been reconciled to God. We are now accepted by God, and we are brought into his family and brought together as as part of his family. When we really believe that and we embrace that identity, it changes everything about us because we no longer have to pretend that we are meeting whatever standards that we try to set, that we long to achieve. We no longer have to pretend that we don't have a past where we have failed many, many times. We are free now to acknowledge our own weakness, our own failures, the way that we have offended God and hurt one another. We're free to acknowledge that and the fact that we we know how to fix it sometimes. But we are now free to go before God and acknowledge that because we don't have to fear being rejected. We've already been accepted. And because we are free to do that, we can go to the one who has forgiven us. He was also the one who has the power and has made the promise of bringing change into our lives. He is able to make us what he says that he's going to do, make us even more than what we hope to be. He's going to make us to be holy and pure, even as he is. He will make us be conformed to the image of of his son, Jesus Christ. And in that we find joy and flourishing. But the process can sometimes be painful because it acknowledges that we are weak 
It acknowledges that we have need. But the understanding that we are God's forgiven people, the willingness to embrace that reality is the key to the ability to change. And it is God who will change us when we embrace our need and his grace. That part is hard enough in some ways because, you know, we're just so used to performing, pretending. We've experienced so much rejection when our failures come out, and it's difficult sometimes to believe God. But even when we do believe that, that part becomes somewhat easier than the second part of the implications of Jesus. We are the forgiven people of God. You know, I'm not sure that I can fully process that, but I like it. I'm willing to entertain that. I'm willing to embrace that. I'm willing to grow in my understanding of that. But then, all of a sudden, directly connected with that is if you are God's forgiven people then you are also called to be God's forgiving people. As those who have received forgiveness, we are called to live out our lives in this world as agents of God's forgiveness. That's the commission that Jesus is saying that uh, is implied with being a follower. It's, it's what we're actually praying for when we pray this petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Again, to C.S. Lewis, he says this, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And the Apostle Paul, again, in the book of Colossians, which deals wonderfully with this subject, although challenging, in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul is saying this is is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is how we live our lives, uh, having been redeemed, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, being, uh, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. This whole forgiveness thing keeps coming. We like the idea of receiving, but the idea of extending it uh, is, is difficult. It is hard, and sometimes it is painful. And Jesus is not unaware of that, but he is serious about this because over and over again, he teaches about it. And even later, in, we see recorded in, in Matthew, in Matthew 18, we see him elaborating on this and acknowledging the difficulty, but the necessity that we who have been forgiven also be God's agents of forgiveness. See, Peter must have been wrestling with this whole idea as well. And I, I take great comfort in that because he had, I went to a good seminary, but Peter had Jesus, so that's, uh, you know, um, I had, you know, R.C. Sproul for a class or two. You know, not quite the same. Um, and so Peter comes and asks Jesus, you know, he's getting it. I mean, he, so how, how many times should we forgive somebody? And depending on your translation, he's saying, you know, seven times seven or... 70 times 7, or, you know, the translation uh, comes through. Either way, it's, it's quite incredible. I mean, he has in mind one person who has done something to him, and, and he's saying, even if you take the lower number, um, 77 times, I mean, get real. Just think of a, a neighbor who drives by, you know, an, you know kind of a, a punk teenage guy who keeps knocking down your mailbox. You put it up. You'll be gracious. He does it again, Okay. I've been forgiven much, I'll put it up again. He comes out as buzz it again, okay? Somewhere between three, four, and 77 times, you're going to be quite annoyed at this. So when Peter's saying 77 times, um, 
He's being gracious even what he's asking. You want me to forgive somebody who has offended me, who has hurt me 77 times? And Jesus is not that, but 70 times 7. At the same time, don't keep account. Now, there's some of you who are math people who might be able to figure this out without actually counting. I can't count to 77, but 70 times 7? Thank you. I know that part. Um, so you have 489 more times to, you know, break into my mess. Anyway, before, no. Thank you, Ali. So, um, but I can't keep up with it unless I, you know, if I keep a record of that, well, then I'm not dealing with this at all. I mean, you get the whole, whole point of that. So Peter is struggling with this whole idea. It means that he understands what we understand because we deal with this subject on such a, you know, another level. And then we go home and we live our real lives. Peter's saying, I'm taking this seriously, so how am I going to do this? And having walked with Jesus, having seen some of this. So we ask this question, and Jesus says, no. And then he goes on, and he gives them this parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And he tells them in the first part of the parable, there's a man who comes to the king who has been forgiven an incredible wealth. You know, I won't go into the numbers in terms of the detail of it in the translation, but basically it's the equivalent of the national debt. This guy can't possibly pay this off. Nobody can pay off this debt that this guy owes to the king. And he goes to the king, and he's begging for mercy, and the king says, you know what? I will forgive you your debt. And the man goes home, and on his way home, he sees a guy who owes him some money, and not an insignificant amount. I mean, it's, you know, the equivalent of a year's salary, uh, and that's a significant amount of money. And he wants his money, and he wants it now. In fact, he threatens the guy, and he, you know, sends the guy to, has the guy, you know, legally, appropriately, sent to, essentially, to debtor's prison. Uh, that is his right. The guy does owe money. There's, there's no facts that are missing from this, but when the king hears about it, he says, look, you are forgiven so much, and you are unwilling to be forgiven. And so that guy was sentenced and still carried the, the weight of his whole penalty. Now, in that story that many of you already know, there's a couple of things that we need to acknowledge. And part of it explains why forgiveness is so hard. But it also reminds us of how we become those people who are able to be God's forgiving people. It is hard because when we feel the need to forgive, when there is a need to forgive, when somebody has offended us, there is a debt that occurs something that is taken from us that we feel like we can't live without. That's why we feel it. That's what makes it difficult. Jesus quantifies it in money, I I tend to think, because we understand money. But it's certainly not limited to to money. We understand tangible amount of money, but if somebody gossips about you, they steal your reputation. If somebody confronts you in a particularly strong way, they rob you of peace and possibly of dignity. Anything that is an offense takes something from us. Now, most things we can roll on because we have enough emotional capital, we have enough you know, relational support, whatever it may be, that we can you know, maybe recognize the inappropriateness of something, but we're not going to lose sleep, we're not going to chafe, we're not going to have a problem. But there are many things that happen, and anytime somebody offends, somebody's taking something from us. Sometimes the offense seems little, but it's an accumulation over time that the rest of us don't get to see, or others don't get to see about it. But either way, there's a sense that Jesus used the illustration to say that when somebody offends you, when somebody sins against you, they're taking something from you. And as a result, we feel like, I don't know how I can live without this. 
because, and that's what makes it hard, because we have this need. It needs to be supplied. It needs to be restored. See, in this story, one of the things that we need to recognize is that when the king forgave the original debt, the debt didn't go away. When there's a debt, it has to be paid. The king said, I will swallow that debt. And so the guy who was forgiven, he no longer bore the burden of it, but the king now was out whatever it was that he was owed. He swallowed that debt. When we feel like we are missing something that we can't live without, whether it's financial, emotional, relational, forgiveness involves swallowing that debt. Somebody must pay. Our instinct says, and maybe even in a sense of justice, is, well, if somebody took it from me, then they're the ones that should pay and pay it back, and maybe with interest. But being gracious people, we don't expect the interest, or we don't ask for it but we still expect them to pay. Jesus speaks to this whole issue and reminds us, we who have been forgiven of an incalculable debt because of our sin and offense against God, we must not understand and appreciate that, we have not, that the king has swallowed our debt, and in our case, the, the king who was also then promised to supply all of our need. So that when somebody has taken something from us and we are unwilling to forgive, we are denying the promise of the king who has already shown his graciousness by forgiving, swallowing our debt, by not believing that he'll supply whatever it is that we need that the other person has taken from us. And so what Jesus is saying in this parable, and he's saying that we are to be praying for in our own lives, is that God grant us the ability to believe, to rest and to trust in him, and his provision is already demonstrated through the forgiveness of our sins, but that whatever is taken from us that he can make up, we are not lesser people. We are not alienated more from God. And so he's saying, you have been forgiven much. Then you need to embrace the mindset. You are now different people. You are to be my agents who are expressing that same forgiveness to the people who are around you. And I appreciate the parable because in that parable, it shows us why it's difficult because we're both of those people. The one that we're not is the king. But every one of us has the opportunity at any moment, every day, whether in our closest relationships or with our neighbors or even with the world that is around us to do the right thing that the first man, forgiven a much, refused to do. We can recognize that, yes, there's a great debt, and it's painful. It's causing me pain. It's causing the world pain. But so is my sin. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, he had written out a, a list of resolutions, and then he would regularly read through them. Among his resolutions was this, is to say, to remind himself that, and he would utilize any occasion where somebody sins against him as an opportunity to repent of his sins before God. The rationale behind it, he said, is this, is that when somebody sins against me, it doesn't make them right, but they sin creature against creature. And in my case, is even if I've been wronged, I've, I'm so wrong in so many different things. But every sin that I engage in, 
Every offense to the people around me is a sin against God, and that is a sin of a creature against his creator. And so no matter what the offense of the sin, and no way minimizing that some sins, and some of you have experienced horrible, awful things, and it has shaken your life, and the idea of forgiveness is, seems impossible. I don't want to minimize that reality, but we do need to embrace kind of what Edwards is suggesting there, is recognize in, in light of our relationship with God, our sin against him is even, even worse, even if it seems to be relatively minor. Not because of the offense, but because of the one who was offended. And he has swallowed that debt. And then has promised to supply our need and to enable us to be what he has called us to be. And, and so it's vitally important that we understand, first and foremost, that we are rooted in being a forgiven people and the promise of God to meet our needs. Now, before I move on, I need to just very go quickly. And I know from a time standpoint, I won't elaborate like I really, really, really want to. Um, But I need to say a few things here. This call to forgiveness, forgiving is not forgetting. I don't know where that came in. It's probably a distortion of, you know, the whole idea of God remembers your sin no more. Now go and be godly. That's a kind of a misunderstanding. God is saying, I don't remember anymore in a legal, in a judicial sense. It will never come back up as an accusation against you anymore. Not in a cognitive sense, like he's got COVID brain. And the way that I demonstrate it is this, is, I know how I have sinned, whether against my wife or my children or some of you, and, and I know God's promise and I, I know that he has forgiven me, but I know what I have done or not done. So do I know something God doesn't know? That, that's ridiculous. It's not that God doesn't know. He's using that in a judicial sense. So in the same sense, we have that standard in thinking forgiving is forgetting. There are certainly many, many offenses that have happened to you in your lifetime that, you know, you know, it were a big deal at the time, and you have absolutely no recollection of them anymore. Some things you forget, but sometimes you, you can't forget. There are sometimes you, you should not forget because it could be dangerous. And so we need to be very clear. Forgiveness is swallowing the debt. It is the foregoing of pulling punishment, extracting the pound of flesh, barring from Shakespeare, that we are inclined to do. And, and kind of building on that illustration from the, the Merchant of Venice with Shakespeare is, uh, the reason that that is a problem is because the one who wanted the pound of flesh, uh, the whole point there is, well, there is justice, but here's the problem, is that uh, was put before Shylock, who was the one that wanted the pound of flesh. Okay, go ahead and take your pound of flesh, but if you take one ounce more, then you are unjust and you deserve the same penalty uh, that somebody else does. We're unjust, especially when we're angry and we're frustrated and we're hurting. We're broke. We're not going to use, we're not the best judges of things. And so therefore, for us to take vengeance means we're going to do something that is unjust. We may give a punishment that is more, and so vengeance is left to God. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we forget the offense necessarily. It just means we are going to leave it to God to bring uh, justice. Now, it also doesn't mean that it's okay uh, those people from uh, the uh, Emmanuel uh, AME church in Charleston that said they forgave, they never stood up and said, it was okay uh, that you shot our relatives. And they didn't stand there and say, you know, I don't think he should go to jail. Because they remembered, they knew, 
and for the benefit of all of society, someone that is this evil and this unstable needs to be put away so that he can't hurt any, anybody else. It's not saying that they forget. It's not saying uh, that it is okay. It's not even necessarily reconciliation. Forgiveness requires only one. Reconciliation requires two. And in some cases, reconciliation isn't even wise. One of the hard parts of being an elder in a church is sometimes dealing with uh, marriage issues. And in some cases, I've been fortunate since I've been here that uh, I don't recall any that involved um, physical abuse, but I was put on a commission. Another church had asked for several of us. I think Ben Robertson served with me, and another church had a problem that involved that. And the guy, you know, repented and wanted restored, but just wouldn't acknowledge the, the debt that he had paid. And, and the church, the reason it went to the Presbytery Committee is because the church elders had said, no, we're not going to tell the wife to move back in with you right now. You're a dangerous man. And so he appealed to the Presbytery, and we told him the same thing. Sometimes reconciliation is not wise. It's not necessary. Now, when reconciliation can take place, it's a beautiful thing. But some of these things that we tend to think are in, in, uh, indelibly embedded in the whole idea of forgiveness, which makes it all the more hard. Forgiveness is hard on its own, but it, that's not necessarily... Those are other aspects that, that, that come out of it. Forgiveness is simply swallowing the debt and choosing not to, for, not to exact the penalty upon the one who has taken something from you. The question, though, that we have to wrestle with is, what, is, what, what about when I feel I cannot forgive? I mean, the debt is so deep. The pain is so real. I think the scripture tells us over and over and over again, the answer to that is to turn our attention back to the cross. See, it's a recognition of how we have been forgiven and what we have been forgiven of and the debt uh, that we have been forgiven and the extent of our forgiveness and that over time it, it breaks the thing that is hard in our heart and empowers us to do what we're called to do. I'm not saying that that is easy. I'm saying to you who are harboring things that have been hard and horrible in your lives that that's the process. Even as the hymn says, we survey the, the wondrous cross on which the, our, our Prince of Glory died. And then our richest gains are the things that, you know, we think that we have or we build up for ourselves. We count as nothing. We count as loss. We pour contempt on all our pride. And at a very, very deep, deep level, in a way that I'm pleased, don't hear me scolding you. But when I'm unwilling to forgive, because I think that this one, this one excuses me, my attitude about that computer right now. It's a pride. It wasted my time. It diminished me. It's not even human. I'm better than it, even if it's smarter than me. And, and you know, um, it's a process. It's a process in us. And feeling the inability to forgive is not the same as the unwillingness to forgive. You've got to deal with that difference. If you're unwilling to forgive, you've got to deal with God on a different level. But those of you who are struggling, because I'm making this sound too easy, believe me, I understand that it's not easy. 
But if we don't deal with how to deal with that, and it's to continue to go back and to contemplate the depth of the debt and how much we have been forgiven, because it's only that that changes and transforms our heart. But when we embrace that, it changes everything. And we are able to become God's agents of forgiveness in his world. Let me wrap up with this because I I think it's a powerful imagery and it's also a reminder of the reason that Jesus says that we are to pray this and the reminder of the purpose for which we are in this world instead of God saving us and just taking us right out. But Martin Luther King Jr. says this, forgiveness is a revolutionary act. It is the Christian weapon of social redemption. It is the power to change society. And our world is in great need of forgiveness. We live in a culture that is racked with fissures and fractures and acrimony in every aspect. And sometimes vengeance is celebrated as if that is the highest virtue, and it is the virtue of the world. Uh, But our God says, nope, love is the greatest virtue in the world, and reconciliation is the tool by which love is going to be applied, and love is going to change the whole world. Forgiveness is a weapon of God's redemption, of God's redemptive love. It is the weapon of our warfare if we are called, if we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven in order to extend the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to a lost, to a hateful, to an ugly world. But when we know that we have been forgiven... When we truly embrace that and we celebrate it, the Lord transforms us and changes us more and more. We are able to be the agents that he's calling us to be. And so today I invite you, pray for me even as I preach, knowing the absolute hypocrisy of, of, you know, I, I, I wish I could finish up by saying, so do as I say and not as I do. But let's pray together. God would change us. And then he would use us as agents of his redemptive forgiveness in this broken and hostile world. Lord, open our eyes to see your glory. And even tell us and show us how we have failed you. But may your spirit continue to do as he does and remind us of the redemption that is ours in Christ and every promise that goes with it. Free us from the bondage of not only our failure, but of our woundedness. Shape us to be like Christ that we may say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, even though they may perpetrate great evil. May we be the agents. May we be a priesthood to this world, standing between the holiness of God and the brokenness of the world, interceding for those who are lost, even as we proclaim to them the love that can be theirs. Lord, change us, transform us, use us to your glory and give us the peace and the joy that comes to those who experience it. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.